Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're discussing the science behind winning elections. We're joined by journalist Sasha Eisenberg, the Washington correspondent for Monocle, who covered the 2008 presidential campaign for the Boston Globe, is the author of The Victory Lab, The Secret Science of Winning Campaigns, and he's also a fall fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics. Sasha, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me here, Matt. Your book, The Victory Lab, it's been compared to uh, like a money ball for electoral campaigns. Um, Moneyball covered this whole radical change in the culture of baseball based on statistics. Where is that change happening in politics? Well, the cultural shifts are really similar in the two fields. And part of it is that you had, uh, in the same way that in Michael Lewis's book, you had a sort of entrenched order, the, in his case, the scouts and the front office and people who had a, uh, a sort of hierarchy of knowledge that, that um, uh, was derived from their wisdom or longevity or these sort of hunches that they had turned into to sort of rules um, that, that gets unmasked when all of a sudden you use sort of new statistical tools to measure effectiveness. Um, people in politics have always had plenty of numbers to go around, obviously, and have had maps. It's not as though it, it sort of lacked for, for facts. But there was never a, a sort of good way to measure cause and effect. And so you know, I sort of tell the story of these two major innovations that have come into to politics right around the same time that, that baseball underwent its transformation and other fields too, finance, you know, I mean, you sort of have, uh, in part because I think of some changes in sort of the academic social sciences uh, and the methodological techniques that become available there, changes in computing power, database architecture all around the turn of the century and finally make it possible to collect and analyze large number sets quickly. And so this changes a lot of fields. In politics, the the campaign politics in particular, the two major uh, sort of innovations that I write about are, are the use of, of field experiments, randomized control trials, so basically uh, drug trials, pharmaceutical trials, but uh, where voters are being used as the guinea pigs and they're being randomly assigned doses of political communication. Um, that move into the field from political science um, uh, to measure the impact of the smallest campaign contacts, whether a knock on the door makes somebody more likely to vote, whether sending somebody a piece of mail or a phone reminder makes them more likely to register. And for the first time, it becomes possible to sort of empirically uh, disentangle cause and effect. And so in the same way that Michael Lewis showed that all of a sudden you you measure uh, a player's productivity and you no longer have to think about whether he has a hot girlfriend or his body looks like a first baseman's or whatever the sort of uh, lore that, that surrounded what made a, a good player or not. Um, all of a sudden in, in politics, a lot of things that had been sort of passed down wisdom or uh, people telling stories about what worked in this one election I did this one time all of a sudden become challenged by, by the scientific method. And at the same time, you have the availability of all types of new data about individual voters that, that allows people to sort of change the unit at which they're profiling the electorate from the data that we had that was at the county or precinct or the category of large demographic groups like gender, age, race, down to individual people. And that's those two things together uh, have really changed the ability of campaigns to to target their resources and measure the effectiveness of what they do with voters. Now, it seems like the the analogy would be scouts and consultants in, in politics. Um, did you see that in recent campaigns, you've had a separation between some campaigns who are, you know, focusing on that old consultant model versus other campaigns that are trying to do very data-driven work and are empirically more successful? Yeah. I mean, so in the same way that, that uh, there are, you know, scouts who are... Uh, 
curious and attentive to to fact and skeptical and you know the story of 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 uh moneyball is very much about how one general manager uh decided against the way that all other general managers price players to do things are consultants and vendors and operatives who are um responsive to uh the latest sort of innovations and then there's a sort of old guard um and in many ways it breaks down on generational lines uh the big thing that defines the sort of the the old guard and the new guard isn't necessarily what party they're in or what their skill set is or if they're good with numbers or what what function they have in a campaign or in a party but um there's a certain humility that comes along with embracing tools that tell us what we do know with scientific certainty because all of a sudden you realize how much of what goes on in campaigns is is unknowable. Um, and the, the amazing thing is that the smartest, most plugged in, savvy people uh, who have access to the most data and most sophisticated methodological tools are the ones who are most likely to say to me, I have no idea why that's happening or, uh, you know, they... they they're, they're really humble in epistemological level. And um, that's, it's the people with the most certainty who I think probably, whether you see them on cable news or if you're a candidate and they're coming in and giving you a PowerPoint presentation and they tell you exactly how this is going to play and how certain voters are going to respond and here's why, are probably the people who've made themselves most immune to to sort of new ways of thinking. So could you explain some of the specific tools that are being employed by the campaigns? Is it when they're developing messaging? Is it when they're targeting voters? Where I mean, where does it come in? Yeah, so increasingly the tools of uh, randomized experiments uh, are becoming useful in almost every aspect of a campaign. It's a lot, the easiest things to randomize are individual level contact emails. and emails or, or knocks on doors mm-hmm. or uh, 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 phone calls or pieces of, of direct mail um, the off world the offline stuff real world stuff like like that is is the easiest because it's tethered to a real person's identity so um, if I knock on your door I know that your address mat- matches up with your voter registration record and then I can go at almost no cost see if my contact made you more or less like more or less likely to vote or more or less likely to register um you know one of the things about the united states is we have um sort of amazing electoral rolls uh compared to other countries they're public they're readily available uh some of the reforms after 2000 made them very easy to get across state lines and stuff and so whereas in some countries whether or not you vote is private or nobody's ever organize or digitize it it's very easy so we have a very good science now of sort of mobilization and registration what types of contacts change somebody's likelihood of of doing these things and what we know from those is that the thing that is most effective in broadly the types of interactions that are most effective at changing the the behavior of non-voters to make them voters are uh, face-to-face interactions at a door uh, with a well-trained volunteer who is engaging in, in what people call a chatty script. I and mean, people run these experiments where the, the difference between a, a script where the volunteer uh, asks questions, um, uh, so there's some sort of back and forth, even if it's structured, uh, those are a lot more effective at, at, at mobilizing somebody to vote than what they'll call a robotic script, where I read at you for 45 seconds mm-hmm. or a minute. Um, uh, and you know we know uh, that that the best thing ever measured to uh, way of turning a non-voter into a voter is this experiment that was done in Michigan in 2006, where um, uh, 
two professors at a school in New Haven that I'm not sure I'm allowed to mention uh, this weekend. Uh, uh, partnered with a local direct mail vendor in, in East Lansing before a gubernatorial primary. And they randomly assigned voters to get one of several letters. And one of them said something like, Dear Matt, your history as a voter is a publicly available document on file with the Macomb County Board of Elections. Here's your history as a voter. And it listed... You know, you did not vote in last year's state senate elections. You did vote in the school board elections. You did not vote in the presidential primary the year before that. And here are your neighbors' vote histories. And had other people from your block and whether or not they had voted in those same elections. Wow. And then there was including this, primaries, including so indicating primaries. their their party preference. Party preference. But the core of it was this idea of of whether or not they'd been good citizens. Really, mm-hmm. I think. And and. Um, and then there's a threat. It said there's another election coming up, and afterwards we'll send everybody an updated set. Um, this wow. uh, this increased turnout among the people who received it by 28%. Um, it also got the guy who sent it death threats. And so um, those two facts sort of conspired to convince people that they were really onto something. This was the idea of social pressure, as, as psychologists call it, mm-hmm. letting people know this thing that they think is private, whether or not they vote, how frequently they vote, what elections they vote in is actually a matter of public record. And you could be... <clears throat> It can be monitored or surveilled. You can be judged by by other people based upon it. And people, turns out, readily adjust their behavior, live up to what the standards of good citizenship that they that they want to embody. It's becoming technically possible to link that together with your real world identity. But often online, we may know that seven percent of people who got an email with with Michelle Obama's picture on it gave to the campaign, and four people who got a picture of Barack gave to the campaign. Mm-hmm. But it's very difficult to stitch those people's identities back to who they are in the real world. Right. And the thing that is still very much a mystery is persuasion. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's very much a mystery is what television ads do. And that still remains you know, the biggest part of any significant campaign's budget. The certainly remains a thing that, that uh, the folks at the top level of a campaign, the pollster, the message strategist, the candidate spend the most time thinking about what do we say, where, how do we say it, and that's the part of a campaign that that still is hardest to subject to that kind of rigorous scientific experimentation. So a lot of people know that their voting history is at least in the public domain that they've voted at all. Um, but is there other information that campaigns have access to that they're connecting it to? That I mean, uh, imagine there's a lot of information out there. I mean, based on everything, credit card companies right. sell their data. I mean, are campaigns pulling that in and trying to use? Yeah, so this was the big breakthrough that that happened around the year 2000 was folks in politics said, um, they looked at the corporate world, at consumer marketers, and said, wow, uh, they know a lot more about their customers or potential customers than we know about our voters. You know, in the past, campaigns had to look at census tract. I mean, well, for age uh, and gender, that stuff's on your voter registration form. Mm -hmm. But for household type or socioeconomic status or education level, often the best that they could do was to look at the census tract and extrapolate about the people who live there. But um, often, you know, those are averaged or just or distributed in categories and and there are all sorts of outliers and there are a lot of very heterogeneous uh census tracts where you have people of high school degrees and you have people who have graduate degrees living one next to each other and it doesn't really help you that much if you know the percentages by mm-hmm. census tract um and so it finally became possible to sort of link these what had been these very disparate uh, uh data collection uh, uh repositories of data the sort of voter registration record that has a sort of rich profile of your individual political history and very little bit about you demographically with information about how uh, about your neighborhood from the political history of how your precinct has voted in the past, which is useful, census information about your neighborhood, and then now hundreds, in some cases, the Obama campaign probably had up, access up to 1,300 individual variables about a voter 
um, many of which are totally useless for politics. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you took a cruise in the last six months is something that uh, the folks that do data analysis for the Obama campaign probably have access to, but it is probably of no good use to them. Mm -hmm. But the goal is using statistical models, algorithms, to uh, weigh the influence of each of those variables on predicting the answer to really the two big questions that campaigns care about. The first is how likely are you to vote, to go out and cast a ballot at all, and who how likely are you to vote for Barack Obama or Mitt Romney, mm -hmm. whoever the candidates are, and, and maybe how likely are you to be pro-choice or own a gun or whatever the mm -hmm. that sort of crucial thing is. And um, those, in effect, serve the same function in political campaigns now that credit rating scores do uh, in in the lending industry. And so in, in instead of having to make an individualized assessment, uh, should I send a piece of mail to this person? Uh, should I send a uh, volunteer to knock on their door. Now a field organizer in an office before they put a list of names on a walk sheet um, can sort of look at this this package score, a 0-100 prediction of, you know, is this person likely to be a voter already? Mm -hmm. In which case, we probably don't need to do get out the vote work to them. Is this person likely to support us or never very unlikely to support us? In which case, we probably don't want to bother persuading them. And sort of segment the electorate at an individual level and not at the level of big geographic zones or demographic categories. Well, Sasha Eisenberg, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to HKS PolicyCast, a production of Harvard Kennedy School. Hear more interviews at hks.harvard.edu slash policycast. And join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag policycast. Mm -hmm.